friends to the tomb of ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. I am the tomb's proprietor, Headstone P. Gravely, and here I are two captive hosts, Shrey Lawson and James Hickson. Greetings, Tomb Believers. You're listening to Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. I'm Trey Lawson, and with me is my co-host, James Hickson. Trey? Yes? I had the weirdest dream. There were two brothers, one red and one blue, and they, 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 they touched. And then you were there, and Ryan Daly was there. And PJ Frightful was there, and, uh, and, and... Oh my. You, you, you realize what this means, James? What? It means you really need to lay off the spicy food before bed. But I like it. Actually, no. Um, we got caught up in some sort of weird interdimensional warp. Um, I, ch- I had a nice little chat the other day with this guy named... He called himself Access... Um, and he seems to have straightened everything out for us, so, you know. Oh, that, that was nice of him. Right. Um, anyway, um, you're listening to, uh, a show all about the, uh, weirder, creepier side of Marvel Comics, uh, and we've got a few really fun horror comics to look at this week. Uh, what, what are the titles this time, James? We have Tomb of Dracula, number 8, Monster of Frankenstein, number 3, and Werewolf by Night, number 5. So we've got three of our heavy hitters. These are sort of the the cornerstones of Marvel horror right here, uh, and we're sort of back to talking about all three all at once. They've been spread out a little bit over the last several episodes, so we're, we're getting back to basics here. Right, and n- n- not having to bother with that flaming skull guy on a tricycle <laughs> or uh the the swamp monster with the elephant trunk okay i like the swamp monster <laughs> i do too <laughs> um so uh what do you say we take a short break and then come back with our first issue of the episode um that will be tomb of dracula number eight right after this message the last man on earth fights the terrifying living dead. Robert! Get away from her! Vincent Price against zombie killers, the last man on earth. Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. My name is James Hickson, and our first comic this week is Tomb of Dracula, number eight, The Hellcrawlers. Cover date in this issue is May 1973. Writer is Marv Wolfman, penciler is Gene Colan, inker is Ernie Chan, letterer is Glennis Ween, editor is Roy Thomas. We begin our story where the last issue left off, with our team of intrepid vampire hunters locked in a room with a gang of murderous entranced children while Dracula and his lackey Graves flee. Unfortunately for Dracula, however, in the last pages of last issue, he was tagged with a poisonous dart, and even now can feel the poison flowing through his vampiric veins. Realizing something must be done, Dracula takes off in bat form. Meanwhile, in the locked room, the vampire hunters are able to temporarily stall the mind-controlled moppets by firing Quincy's net gun invention at them. While the tenacious tykes work to cut through the net, Taj bends the bars in the window, enough for the leaf Rachel von Helsing to crawl through. Rachel runs around the house, easily taking out the incompetent Graves, who Dracula left to guard the door. The gang hightail it to their car, with the cut-rate children of the damned behind them, only to find a vehicle has been disabled. The gang hold off the rampaging Rugrats for as long as they can before they are rescued in the nick of time by Quincy's daughter, Edith who arrives in a helicopter loaned by the group's secret benefactor, a member of Parliament. While this is happening, Dracula is visiting an old associate, Dr. Heinrich Mort, 
a simple country doctor with a dark secret. He too is a vampire. Mort restores Dracula's health with transfusion of the supply of blood donated by his unknowing patients, and Dracula reveals his other purpose for visiting the good doctor. The Lord of Vampires desires the Projector. Mort initially refuses to lead Dracula to the device, but the Dark Lord threatens the life of Mort's innocent mortal daughter, Adrian, and the fanged doctor acquiesces. When they arrive at the projector's hiding place, the local cemetery, Dracula reveals the device's function by using it to raise the cemetery's tenants as an army of vampire zombies. Revolted by the use of the device he had originally invented to restore life to ailing patients being used for evil, Mort steals the device from Dracula, taking the disguise in bat form with the device in his talons. Dracula follows, similarly transformed in an epic dogfight commences overhead. As the thirsty ghouls descend on the cemetery's lone living occupant, Adrian, the Bat Dracula sinks his fangs into the neck of Bat Mort, ending the Doctor's life and sending the projector tumbling to the ground where it shatters. As a result, the vampire zombie army turns to dust, and the now once again humanoid form of Mort is impaled upon the cemetery's wooden fence, leaving Andrea very much alone in the world as Dracula flees into the night. So let's start with the cover of this one. Um, it's, uh... Well, what, what do you think of the cover, James? That Vampire Legion sure looks like zombies. Right? Doesn't it, though? That's a whole bunch of, of zombie vampires crawling up out of those graves. We only know it's vampires because, because Dracula the, says, prepare the, yourself to greet my vampire legions. Yeah, it, it's almost like the artist wanted them to be zombies, and then at some point the writer or editorial said, no, no, they need to be vampires. Now... If you do look in the art inside the book, you will notice they are fanged. Okay. So, I guess that was in the original summary given. I, I guess. But this is a, I mean, this is pretty much a zombie story. Right. And even then, it's not even the main focus of the story. Like, they, they emerge and start to attack, and almost immediately are destroyed. Yeah, but honestly, it does make for a good cover. Oh, it's a, it's a very good cover, and yeah, I'm always a fan of uh, speech bubbles on the cover. I enjoy it when the characters are, are speaking on the cover, uh, and so uh, prepare yourself to greet my vampire legions it is a nice sort of attention-grabbing uh bit of text yeah it's definitely a, a a practice that has fallen out of favor yes and i don't know why because it's it it's definitely eye-catching um and dracula dracula is appropriately menacing um he's uh sort of lunging forward both at the characters on the cover but also sort of towards us the readers yes Sadly, Adrian's hair color is wrong on the cover. Y yes. That, you, that... Would not, you might be forgiven for thinking that was maybe Rachel Van Helsing. Right. Uh, but yeah, I think the the, uh, the layout is good. The, the sort of uh, positioning of Dracula and the humans and the, uh, the hell crawlers, I guess we should call them. Um all sort of seems designed to draw your attention to the book in, in an effective way. Yeah. Sort of a sparse background, but that's okay because there's so much going on in the foreground that it doesn't really matter. Yeah, I don't think there's really anything else needed in the background. And we have this little wisp of wind mm -hmm. or mist, which do add a bit of ambience to it. Yes. Um, but let's talk about the issue. Sure. 
Um, what did you think? I, I thought this was a pretty a pretty good issue. It was. Now, well, one thing I particularly like about the issue is we finally get to see the net gun fire. Right. At characters who are not vampires. But let us sing the net gun song. Net gun song. Net gun song. Let us sing the net gun song. Net gun song. Net gun song. Let us sing the net gun song. That just happened. Coming soon to iTunes. <laughs> I'm not wrong, though, that the net gun kind of sucked. I mean, you know, on non-vampires, yes. <laughs> but if they had fired it on Dracula last issue, like it was intended to be used like to this prevent issue, Dracula from escaping... This issue wouldn't have even happened. No. No. Dracula would have been immobilized, the children would have been freed, and the series would have ended. Yep. Because they would immediately stake him. Um, one thing I really liked is just how badass Rachel Van Helsing is in the beginning of the issue. Right. Now, one thing they do nicely in this in this issue, and I didn't really talk about in the summary, is they intersperse the action between the two plot lines. Mm-hmm. When Dracula flies off, the the issue splits into two different different plot lines. You have the vampire um, hunters uh, trying to escape the gang of mind control children, and you have Dracula, um, Doctor Mort, and the Projector. And while I covered them separately in the summary, in the issue the, itself, they are kind of interspersed between the two. Yeah, and slowly sort of drawing closer together as they go on. Yeah, but one of the things I like about it is the transition between scenes is very nicely done. Well, like, for example, um, when vampire hunters have made it to the car. Um, okay. And, and it's sort of at the bottom of, of the page. Um, and Rachel shouts, Quincy, look to the fortress. And then on the next page, you get the reverse shot of the car in the distance and her shouting, the children, they're free. And the image is from sort of the point of view of the children coming toward them with weapons. And so it yeah. sort of, it continues the action in a way that feels very cinematic, really. Definitely. Or one of the things that I was, this is another Rachel Van Helsing one, where at the bottom of one page, she shouts, look, and you have to turn the page, like it's on the next page that you see what it is she's saying to look at. I, I will say, give Graves credit because he had to have been the one to disable his car. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Be because Dracula did not stop long enough to disable anything. He just like, oh, this dart's killing me. I'm going to go look up an old associate. Yep. Gr Graves, try to make sure they don't escape for too long. Right. He doesn't even, like, have faith that they'll be killed. It's just like, Graves, try not to fuck this up too badly. Right. Right. Which, of course, Graves fucked us up badly. But that's because he's Graves. I like the introduction of Dr. Mort, the the secret Dr. Vampire. Um, which, of course, being a newly introduced vampire character, he had to die by the end of the issue. That is the rule of Tomb of Dracula. Yeah. Um, if, you, if your name is not Dracula and you've got fangs, you don't last past an issue or two. Right. But it was a cool idea. Um, and in particular, the idea that Dracula has a vampire doctor he could go to to get blood transfusions. Which, it's not really revealed how Mort becomes a vampire. No. You assume that Dracula turned him. That, right, that's what I took from it, but he never actually says. No. But, but the whole, first... who you owe your true allegiance to... Part of that is the whole Lord of Vampires thing, but that also feels very much like a, like, I'm the one who turned you kind of thing. At first, I thought he was the doctor from the second issue. Mm -hmm. The older doctor who used to work in Dracula's castle as a child, and now as an old man, is, a, is the village doctor. I thought he had gone back to Transylvania. Um, but here, you know, it's not really clear where he is. This kind of generic European village 
Could be England, could be France, could be ladies underpants. Sorry, <laughs> that 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 was inappropriate. One thing I do find funny is when he's operating on Dracula on page seven, mm-hmm. the dart is still in there. Right, he's not removed it. No, you, you, you would think someone would do that. Which also means that Dracula got completely undressed without taking the dart out. Also transformed from a humanoid into a bat and back into a humanoid with the dart still there. Yep. Yep. I can't imagine the dart would offer some wind resistance. I would think so. I think that would have made for more difficult flying. Yeah. Um. Also, so what exactly is the deal with the projector? Like, it was somehow being used to heal patients, but Dracula can reverse the polarity on it to revive dead people and turn them into vampires? Yeah, reverse the polarity of the neutron flow. Okay. Yeah. Because that's not explained. Sci- that's just what I assume no, it, he did. It, it's basic science, Trey. Like, cause, because in the close-up of the projector, there's a little toggle switch there. I figure he flipped it from one position to the other, and that was it. Yeah. Which, the thing with the projector doesn't really tie into the fact that Dr. Mort is a vampire. No. It, he just, he wants to help his patients. Like, if you had said that he had invented the the projector to try to cure his vampirism, mm-hmm. and instead it creates more vampires, I could kind of buy that. Because that was, that was initially what I thought it was, but then that was not where the issue took it. No. And also, I'm kind of disappointed that the best name they could come up with was The Projector. Right. Not the, like the... There's no indication of what it projects, or how it projects. Yeah, even the projector of Doom would have been better. Right. Now, was it just me, or when they kept on talking about a uh, secret associate coming to rescue them, did you think that, like, Blade was going to show up on the last page? I, I kind of thought that we would see at least a, a final splash of, of Blade. Right. Heck, I thought, like, when, when the helicopter Blade... showed up, I kind of expected Blade to be, like, dangling from a ladder with it with a wooden knife or something. <laughs> a machine gun firing wooden bullets. <laughs> <laughs> but no Blade for us this time. No. No Daywalker for us. No. Um, and it... And, uh... Yeah, there's, there's some good imagery, though. Um, the... the the reanimated vampire creatures i mean they definitely look like zombies but they're they're interesting you know they look creepy yeah although if you do look at page 18 you will see if you look very closely they do have fangs they do have fangs yes they are vampires in the uh vincent price last man on earth mold Ooh, good callback i really like some of the bat transformation stuff in this issue the the fight between the two bats at the end of the issue is really good right it's a dog fight yeah it's with bats um and the way freaking bats the way mort transforms while impaled on the fence yes that is nice yeah no this is um we tomb of dracula had not exactly a rough patch but things had sort of slowed down a little bit but with this issue it feels like we are picking up steam again and actually moving forward with developing some of these characters and and getting to some real action right marv wolfman seems to be doing some interesting things and actually as i say that i'm looking at that last page with the vampire sorry with the doctor being impaled on a fence and i didn't notice before his daughter screaming no 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 over the whole thing yeah over the transformation that is great yeah that is because it starts very nice when the bat makes contact when the bat hits the the post in the in the top of the page she shouts father and let's just appreciate that sound effect for a second oh yeah whap that's a good one which apparently is the sound of a giant bat being impaled upon a wooden fence which is separate from dracula when one bat slams into another bat that happens to be carrying a high-tech vampire zombie creator um that sound 
is not FWAP. That is FWAM. The Z Projector. That would be a great name for it. Right? The Z Projector. Heck, even the V Projector. Yeah. I, I like that name so much more than just the projector. Also, the whole concept of having a high-tech sort of ray gun device that transforms people into into vampires um, right. is totally an episode of the 90s Spider-Man cartoon because they use, they, they use the genetic recombinator. And also, it raises that question again of how many times has Dracula come back between the uh Bram Stoker novel and the modern day right because there's no way that something like that was made in the late 1800s exactly he he clearly was not lying as a skeleton in that coffin for as long as we initially thought no but again that i'm i'm assuming those are questions that marv will answer for us as we go along right and speaking of going along, the advert for the next issue promises next death from the sea. That sounds promising. Yeah, it does. It's just going to be a few episodes before we get to it. <laughs> um, so uh, do you have any uh, final thoughts on the issue? Anything that stood out or that we haven't covered? No, I think that pretty much covers it. Yeah, like I say, good issue. Um, the The sort of what's going to become more or less the final creative team has really uh, hit their stride, I think. And I'm looking forward to seeing more. At least the beginnings of a stride. Sure. No, they are, they are building to something that, that feels like it's going to be a lot of fun. I mean, this is only Marv Wolfman's um, second issue, I think. Second issue. Yeah. But it's definitely, you know, we kind of thought the previous issue was weak. Um, this one is somewhat better. And the action never really stops. Right. And I think part of that is the interspersing of the two scenes, where we have kind of um, a slow um, character interaction scenes with the Doctor and the and Dracula. We do have that, that um, fast-paced action of, oh my god, these children are breaking through the windshield and are going to kill us. Yeah, yeah. Um, good issue. All I gotta say, it's a good issue. Yeah, yeah. I, I look forward to the next one to see how the story develops more because I have questions. Right. And I want answers. Um, and I think that's probably a pretty good place to stop. So uh, we're going to take a short break and we will be back in just a minute with Monster of Frankenstein number three, The Monster's Revenge. I heard him yelling in the castle. Fix me. His name's Big Frank. Fix me. I said, I'm going to fix you. The <laughs> talking monster, Big Frank. I'll fix you, Big Frank. Monster boy fixed. <laughs> How do you feel now, Frank? I'm alive. It's always fun to fix him. The talking monster, Big Frank. Thank you. Big Frank talks and his eyes light up. Battery's not included. And we're back to Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. And our next issue is Frankenstein number three, The Monster's Revenge. Cover date is May 1973. The writers are Mary Shelley and Gary Friedrich. The penciler is Mike Plug, uh, who also inks himself. Uh, colorist is Dave Hunt. Letterer is Charlotte Jetter. And the editor is Roy Thomas. Having just struck an Arctic iceberg, explorer Robert Walton escapes with his crew in a lifeboat as Frankenstein's monster falls into the frigid and tumultuous sea. The monster emerges from the water and kills Walton's mutinous crew, but spares Walton, his Inuit guide Canute, and the cabin boy. He guides the three of them to solid ice, and they shelter in the remains of an old rotting ship. In return for the rescue, the monster demands that Walton tell the rest of the story, and so we delve once again into flashback. Victor Frankenstein stands trial for the murder of his friend Henry, and as he is dragged to prison, he begins professing his guilt and demanding execution. Instead, 
he spends months in prison, haunted by madness and his fear of the monster. Months later, Frankenstein's father arrives with a letter establishing Victor's innocence. Just as he begins to recover from his incarceration, the monster crashes through the wall and promises to take his revenge on Frankenstein's wedding night. Soon after, Frankenstein reunites with his beloved Elizabeth, and they plan to be married. They spend their wedding night in a tiny remote village miles away, and Frankenstein ensures that no other boats have arrived after them. But the monster swam the entire distance. Watching her through the window, the monster finds himself unable to move against Frankenstein's radiant bride. But, remembering the mangled corpse of his own bride, the monster's hatred takes hold, and in a fit of rage he murders Elizabeth. The monster waits for Victor to find her body, but Frankenstein's cries of grief give him no satisfaction. Victor returns home to Geneva, only to find his father on his deathbed. The strain sends Victor over the edge, and he is committed to an asylum for several months. When he is free, he emerges with singular purpose, to take his revenge on the monster that ruined his life. He chases the monster north, and finally, near the Arctic Circle, he confronts his creation. Before he can take his revenge, the ice breaks, separating them. The monster allows Victor to drift away, thinking he will die of exposure. However, Frankenstein is rescued by a vessel commanded by Walton's great-great-grandfather. Frankenstein was dying, but they made him comfortable, and Walton memorializes the doctor's story in letters. The monster soon sneaks aboard the ship, only to find Frankenstein already dead. Walton tries to avenge the doctor, but the monster is too fast, and has resolved that he will only die by his own hand. To escape the ship, the monster throws himself into the sea. Suddenly, in the present, the story is interrupted by the storm, which causes the beams above them to collapse, leaving the monster and his three companions trapped. So... That was the end of the novel. Yes. Um, yeah, fairly fairly faithfully um, went through uh, the, the end of the, the novel. Um, before we dive too far into it, um, I just do, do want to say I really like the cover for this issue. It, it, it's fine. I mean, it, it again does the problem we have with the Dracula issue where they change the character's hair color. Yes, that, uh, that does but... seem to be a problem. But at least in this one, they make her a redhead. <laughs> this is true. Um, I just really like the uh, the revenge text right below the the title of the book. And yeah, and again, layout is just really nice on it. You've got uh, Frankenstein's monster coming toward uh, both Elizabeth and us. Um, the moon in the background. The like literally ripping the the doors off the hinges. Yeah. It's it's definitely good. Um Now, I don't remember Elizabeth being this voluptuous when we saw her in the first issue. No. But she is definitely drawn voluptuous on this cover and definitely inside the story proper. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, a fair amount of time has passed since we saw her. I suppose. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I guess it, it is their wedding night. I suppose. Um, so it's interesting that despite this being the end of the novel, the way they adapt it makes it feel like the middle of a story. Yes. Which, now that I think about it, kind of has to be admired because you have, you know, you're concluding what is the, I suppose, no better way to say this, canon. And now you're like, you have us want to, wanting more. Yeah. Well, and and have been given the promise of more because, uh, like, right before they get interrupted, the monster is sort of about to start talking about what he did next. 
like how he how he survived the ocean and where he went next which is the first place where we kind of start deviating from the Mary Shelley novel besides um the uh stuff with Walton's grandson uh 100 years from where the novel actually takes place right yeah the the frame narrative is already making this a sequel to the novel but but now we're sort of filling in more of the space between when the novel took place and where we are now. Yeah, so I'm definitely interested in seeing where it goes next. And even the the little text at the end saying, next, the end, or the beginning. Right. It really says, yes, we are now straying from the novel. Where will we go from here? And I'm like, yeah, where will you go? I'm interested. Yeah, suddenly the story is far less predictable because it hasn't been written before. Right. And I will, because I am on the last page, just appreciate the sound effects for a second. Crack! Roof! Room? Waroom? Is that the sound of a ship caving in on you? Waroom? I think I think Waroom, that, that is specifically the sound of a, a ship caving in on you if it's hundred-year-old wood and it's collapsing because of an arctic storm. So, how stupid is Victor in this story? Even when I was reading the novel, I thought to myself, damn, Victor, how stupid are you? Well, I mean, that it's especially stupid because of how compressed it is here. Yeah, now, I would actually say Victor in this is a little bit less stupid than Victor in the novel. Mm. Because Victor in the novel doesn't realize at all that he's talking about killing Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. In, in the... In the novel, he's like, ah, oh, he's going to kill me on my wedding night. Well, at least Elizabeth will be safe. And I'm like, you goddamn idiot. He's going to kill Elizabeth. Right. The whole time. But, like, here, literally on the same page, you have... Um, I will be with you on your wedding night. And then like him reuniting with elizabeth and falling in love all over again yes like it's all in one page yes and And they and they like rekindle their engagement on the very next page yep and by the bottom of that page are married yep where uh frankenstein you goddamn idiot yeah and that's one of the interesting things here is the way the flashbacks shift point of view mm-hmm. depending on who has the information yeah so like a lot of this early stuff here in the issue is victor's point of view by way of walton because it's stuff that the monster would not necessarily know and then it is at that moment where like right after they get married where the monster says in the present, let me take over the story because I can tell you the stuff that you don't know. And from there, it's he, from his point of view, uh, arriving, having swum to the, the island. Yes. Okay, let's talk about the art for a second. Mm-hmm. Is it just me or does the art seem to suffer here? It's in, in just specifically the middle part of the story or the issue overall? I'd say the middle part, yeah. I think I think so. Um, I think the backgrounds get less detailed, and I think I think the inks get muddier. Yeah, that's true. The color, and this could just be that I'm looking at a bad copy, but the coloring is not great. Like, some of the shading on on the monster looks sort of weird. And speaking of the monster, is it just me, or is he looking more and more like his universal counterpart as this series goes on? I think a little bit. I think part of it is that we're getting a lot more close-ups of him. And I think as Plug has worked on it, he's sort of settled into... Uh, a, a consistent style for the monster whereas early on it was sort of shifting uh depending on sort of the tone of the book more than anything else 
Yeah, but when we first saw him, he was this gaunt figure, and now he seems seems like the big, muscly monster of the Universal films. Yeah, and I wonder how much of that was needing him to be more physically imposing for specifically the scenes in this issue and the last issue. It's possible. Because these are the, these are the moments where he, like, actually commits violence against people. Yeah. Um, I do like, the especially the close-ups of the monster are handled very well um, in terms of capturing his emotion. They definitely make pains to make the monster a sympathetic figure, I think even more than Shelley did in her novel. Mm-hmm. Because in Shelley's novel, we are we are getting a much more one-sided version of the story. Pretty much just the one from uh, Victor's perspective. Right. But in this, again, like you said, in this adaptation, we are seeing some scenes from the perspective of uh, the monster. Yeah, and so you get these really fascinating emotional beats, like... Um in the aftermath of Elizabeth's murder, Frankenstein, or the monster, does not feel satisfied. He does not feel victorious. No, his revenge is a hollow one. Because he actually sympathizes with Victor. It's like, ah, you've killed the woman I love, I've killed the woman you love. Well, great, now neither of us have a woman we love, and we're just both miserable now. And it's an interesting counterpoint, because in those moments, the monster feels kinship to victor but later on when victor swears revenge because the monster has ruined his life there's no self-awareness of the fact that he created the monster first like the monster didn't start all the problems victor started the problem but he's he's blind to it. he's like oh this horrible beast has come into the world and ruined everything i love well no you brought this creature into the world you've ruined everything you love right but i i I don't think even in the original novel victor was that self-aware of what he'd done to himself now of course shelley intends for us for it to be obvious to us the reader and even and again even when i was arguing earlier about uh the the monster's intended victim not being uh, Victor, but Elizabeth is obvious to us, the reader, in the novel. Yes, absolutely. But again, Victor is just oblivious. He he has this blind spot where he's not able to look look at things circumspect and be like, "Oh, wait." Anyway, it it's a. I actually think it's a very good adaptation of the frankenstein story oh yeah i think these these few issues together um could have read very well just as a three issue miniseries exactly and honestly of all the ones i've seen it's one of the more faithful adaptations of the frankenstein story right certainly more faithful than the universal one right and that's something they actually call out in the letters column um where uh the one of the the writers sort of commends them for their fidelity to the source material. Warren Stein from Lakewood, New Jersey, writes in, uh, saying that he doesn't he doesn't read a lot of comics. Uh, he says, "I'm not one who enjoys comics magazines too much, but I've read and enjoyed your Tomb of Dracula. Though development in that character is rather unlike the Dracula that is known. However, I think your Frankenstein has great potential and appears to be intelligently written. The art is atmospheric and the script is quite interesting." To be perfectly honest, it's the first comic magazine that has kept my interest. The use of the original Frankenstein story makes it more serious and educated. And, and so he's sort of commending what we're talking about, the fidelity to the novel. And in in replying, um, they sort of say that that's deliberate, that uh, the intention at Marvel from the beginning was to stick as closely to the Mary Shelley version of the story as possible and only change it where it, it made sense to for the medium of comics. And I agree with that. It, yeah. It's, it was a fun series, and I really am interested to see 
what they do with it do with it from here especially since we know that a lot of these character like the character of the creature is going to end up in the modern day somehow right and going to have some encounters with people like spider-man and of course dracula and jack russell exactly and how we get from where we are right now to there is uh an unanswered question um but it's one that has a lot of potential yes i agree but i think we may have exhausted our coverage of frankenstein episode i think so um that's uh gonna do it for uh for the monster although not for all monsters because when we come back we'll be talking about werewolf by night number five after this message I'm me, Fruit Brute, with my fruit-flavored cereal, Fruit Brute, part of your nutritious breakfast. Who are you? But delicious Fruit Brute has fruit-flavored marshmallows for the howling good taste of fruit. Count Chocula's got chocolate marshmallows. Frankenberry's got strawberry-flavored marshmallows. Fruit! Fruit Brute, with a howling good taste of fruit. Welcome back to Move Ideas and Marvel Horror Podcast, our last comic for the evening is Werewolf by Night number 5. Cover date is May 1973, A Life for a Death. Writer is Lynn Ween, penciler is Mike Plug, inker is Mike Plug, colorist is Glennis Ween, letterer is Charlotte Jeter, editor is Roy Thomas. The morning after the events of last issue, Jack Russell makes his way back to the house of Joshua Kane. Boy, to rescue his imprisoned sister, Liza. Upon entering Joshua's study, however, Jack comes face to face with another Kane, Joshua's brother, Luther Kane, and his muscle, Desmond. Luther has been reading Joshua's journal and hence is aware of Jack's family curse. Unlike his brother, however, Luther is a scientist who promises that he can cure lycanthropy, in Liza at least, though not in Jack, as he's already begun his transformations. All he asks in return is a simple favor. Murder. Jack is told in order to secure the cure for Liza, he must murder a man named Judson Kemp, a former business rival that ruined Luther years before. Jack is at first resistant, but when faced with the idea of Liza falling victim to the same curse as himself, he finally agrees. That evening, Luther and Desmond drop Jack Russell off right outside of Kemp's compound, and as the full moon rises, the werewolf makes his way into the compound, quickly dispatching guards and attack dogs along the way. Upon reaching Kemp, however, the werewolf encounters not a ruthless business tycoon, but instead a senile old man, as much interested in petting the strange new doggy as he is in setting up his telescope. Yet the reason for the telescope becomes quickly apparent, as an eclipse begins, causing the werewolf to transform again into Jack Russell. Once again in possession of his wits, Jack spares Kemp and escapes the trigger-happy guards on a stolen motorcycle, Steve McQueen style. Upon returning to the house of Cain, Jack demands that Luther administer the cure to Liza, threatening to break the scientist's neck if he refuses. The muscular bodyguard Desmond steps in, capturing Jack in a devastating bear hug. But Jack is rescued by the end of the eclipse and a return to the form of the werewolf. In a last desperate effort, Desmond throws his switchblade at the werewolf, missing the lycanthrope by a hair. The outraged creature leaps at the bodyguard, snapping the man's back as they cl collide with a nearby desk. After the death of Desmond, the werewolf turns around to find that while the bodyguard's switchblade hadn't found its mark in the werewolf's hairy chest, it had found a home in the chest of Luther Kane, who dies on the study carpet. The werewolf shatters the glass case holding the drugged unconscious Liza and muses in its own bestial way as to how alike they are, how alike they may yet become. So that, that Kane family is just the gift that keeps on giving, isn't it? Right. So we've had Joshua Kane, and we've had Luther Kane. I fully expect to get Ezekiel Kane next month, and um, Marty Kane the month after, right. and Susie Kane, their sister, 
mm-hmm. um, the month after that, and uh, just an abundance of canes. Yep. And we'll just be so happy. that That's what this book is now. The Kane family. Yep. So we've got another sort of interesting attention-grabbing cover here, which of the books probably most accurately depicts a thing that happens in the comic. Yeah, I suppose. It's kind of boring, honestly, in my it, opinion. It, it's not my favorite cover of the three, um, for sure. Uh, like I say, I really like that Frankenstein cover and... And the Dracula cover is far more dynamic than this. You're like, oh, he's battling some wolves, dogs, maybe? And, uh, there's some guys in fatigues firing at him. Right. Not uh, the most enticing cover. It doesn't tell you anything about the plot. Like, there's, there's nothing to differentiate this from any other issue of Werewolf by Night. No. Although I am kind of glad it isn't in some South American country because that's just the vibe I got. Right. That that yes, because you do have like the palm trees in the background against the the moon. Right, and I think especially in the eighties and nineties, we get a plethora of the heroes dropped into some kind of South American country, and has to storm a compound. Oh yeah, yeah. There, there's a lot of that. Yeah, we get a lot with Batman mm-hmm. in the nineties. We got it a lot with uh, Airboy in the 80s. Yeah. In fact, any comic that Chuck Dixon wrote. Yeah. I imagine, I, I, it's been a while since I revisited any 80s and 90s uh, Punisher, but I imagine there was a fair amount of that. Yeah. Taking out some drug lords. Yeah. Kingpins. Heck, even James Bond was, was doing that in the 80s. Yeah, but that movie was good. It's Let's a very good honest. movie. Yeah. It is. License to Kill is a really good bond movie in fact it, it, living daylights is a really good bond movie it is that one's just over long yeah it but has one ending too many probably one of the reasons why you know timothy dalton is the best film bond he is not in my favorite bond movie but he is probably if not my all-time favorite bond he's up there again i will get freaking letters even if it's hate mail hey i'm the one whose favorite bond movie is on her majesty's secret service okay okay the thing about her majesty's secret service is it would have been a really fantastic movie like legendary film if it had sean connery in it i don't think it would be as good a movie with sean connery though because i don't think he could do it you think he just would have chewed scenery well i don't like i try to imagine sean connery in that era, at the end of the movie, crying, and I don't see it. Have you ever seen Darby O'Gill in The Little People? I have, yes. Okay. He does some fairly emotional stuff there. Sure, sure. And but, that's... but, like, his version of Bond was so steeped in machismo, I just don't see him going to those places. Whereas Lazenby from scene one is written to be a little more self-deprecating although it's funny that you use the term machismo because in the issue we're talking about you know remember werewolf by night right luther kane actually actually no it's sorry it's jack russell calls joshua kane a machismo maniac which is a fairly good description of what joshua kane was Yes, that that is entirely accurate. I could have done without the full page and a half recap of the previous issue. Right, with, of course, bare-chested Joshua Kane. Right. Um, and also, how the heck are Joshua Kane and Luther Kane brothers? They look nothing alike. Nothing alike. They act nothing alike. Mm-hmm. It's just like... I don't know. I mean, I've never had siblings, but at least there's some resemblance between siblings. Also, none of these people, none of the people in this comic behave like actual human beings. No, like, there is nothing about Jack Russell that that has made us think he is so morally upstanding and upright that he wouldn't agree to kill someone as the werewolf to save Liza right away. Right, right. Also... Uh. Mm-hmm. I fully is- expected at the end for Luther to reveal that he never had a cure for lycanthropy. Right, right, that it was all a scam. Yeah, but 
as far as we can tell from the end of this comic, there was a cure for lycanthrop. It just died with their cane. Right. Also, why did the old guy need to die? Because he cheated Luther Kane years ago, and even though him dying will do nothing to solve that for him, and he is now a very wealthy man because of his brother's inheritance, petty revenge? Okay, just making sure that this made as little sense as I thought. Oh no, it makes no sense whatsoever. It's just there to provide a moral dilemma for Jack Russell, who apparently is now the most morally upstanding person on Earth. Right. Um. And and the old guy. That's that's supposed to be like Marvel Comics Howard Hughes, right? He's either supposed to be Howard Hughes or um William Randolph Hearst. Uh, I mean he, he he's a rich guy with an H name. That's right. all I can give you. Right. And a recluse who never comes out with lots of yeah. security. And his doctor is played by Robert Culp. <laughs> I mean, I, look yeah. at, look at that character. That is that is totally Robert Culp. Absolutely. guest starring as the doctor yeah not you know the the doctor doctor who because oh my god that'd been amazing but <laughs> as but the old the guy's doctor. doctor yeah the old guy's doctor who hold on he has a name right i he was not enough of a character for me to bother learning it dr evans yeah um so visually um i think this issue is more consistent than the frankenstein issue definitely it doesn't sort of fall apart in the middle the way the the art of Frankenstein did. And we have some really nice, I guess for lack of a better word, plugisms in here. Mm. For instance, on the first page where we have Jack Russell wandering through the rainy early morning back to um, Kane's house, you see the clouds kind of make the shape of the werewolf behind him. Right, right. That's That's, that's really good. The shadowing on the face is really good here. Um... The, you know, the flashback, while unnecessary, is well drawn. Sure, sure. It's done in sort of a montage style that, that's visually interesting. I really like when when Russell imagines his sister becoming a werewolf. Um, yes. That panel is really great, and I kind I hate to say this, but I kind of hope she becomes one, because that's a cool look. That is a great look for her. Looking a little bit like Raquel Welch. Yeah, yeah, like very sort of 60s Hammer vibe. Yeah, if Raquel Welch had become a werewolf. Um, even though he's a caricature, um, Luther Kane is visually interesting. Right, he, he has a very eccentric look with like the uh, polka dot collar. Yeah, I mean, I think he's probably... But, probably. Yeah, um, but that but kind of also, unfortunate gay caricature. Yeah, and it's it's too early for it to be a reference to this, but but he looks like he has the same tailor as uh, Gene Hackman's Lex Luthor. Right, and we should probably point out here that both of us had that thing where when we read the comic, Desmond calls him Mr. Luthor, and we both get, you know, sound bites from Superman the movie playing in our head. I'm sorry, Mr. Luthor. I... Ooh! Oh, yeah. Sorry, Mr. Luthor. Um, but of course, it get you're right. It is five years too early for that. Right, right. But but it is a similar aesthetic. Um, yeah. The the werewolf action stuff is fine. Like it's visually well done. It's just a lot of him fighting dogs and nameless soldiers. I don't get a lot of pleasure from watching him kill some dogs. No, not at all. It's not fun for us. No. I I definitely think. We need some more supernatural threats for the werewolf to yeah, get more fun I, to watch him fight. I'm, I'm getting tired of the, the like, average human and animal fight. And, of course, always one muscle-bound guy. Right, right. Um, I really like the top of page, it's eight. Yes. When the werewolf is approaching the old man. Yes. Um, and so you've got this gigantic background panel of the werewolf's face coming right at you but embedded in it you've got three panels of the old man being totally oblivious yeah and it's really nicely done because like one of the panels is basically clenched within the teeth of the werewolf in the panel behind it so you get the danger that kent that sorry sorry hemp is in even though he himself is unaware of it Yep, it's really well done. That's really. I want more of that. Yeah, and I get, I get that. Like, you're lucky if you get that kind of composition even once in a single issue. But, but it, it's great. You know who it kind of reminds me of? Who's that? And I think 
taking this into consideration, Plug doesn't get nearly enough appreciation as an artist. It reminds me of Todd McFarlane. Mm, I could see that. Where, you know, if if Plug had been 10 years later, 15 maybe years later, he would have been one of those image super. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because the art is really good in this. And yeah, no, he the, is very good at telling a story through the visual. Where this issue makes me realize how much I missed Plug in that Ghost Rider issue from um, the last time we talked about Ghost Rider. Yes, for sure. Where we had this the fill-in artist who definitely was not Mike Plug and made Ghost Rider look like he was wearing a mask. Right, right. Um, yeah, no, it's it, I, I did not realize just how sort of iconic Plug was on these books until we really started diving into the early issues. Although I will point out that Jack Russell's motorcycle escape on the next few pages mm-hmm. is more dynamic than any of the motorcycle stuff in Ghost Rider so far. Yes, this is true. Um, I, also, I, I do like the uh, the gimmick of uh, the Eclipse interrupting the werewolf's attack. Yes. That's a really smart, smart storytelling device. Although... I could get that Jack Russell wouldn't know that there's an eclipse coming because we've already established uh, he does not know how to read a calendar, much less own one. But you would have thought Luther Kane would realize there's an eclipse to Right. And this is You'd maybe... Think just somebody in the book would have access to an almanac or something. Right. And maybe realize this is maybe not the best night to send my werewolf assassin against my sworn enemy. Right. But apparently not. And it's another issue where Jack basically wins because of luck. Yes. Um, both because the moon comes back out, and then also because the big muscly thug is just really bad at throwing knives. Yes. So I am finally getting the hang of this whole three nights of the full moon thing that right. I got going on. So our first night was the Mad Monk. Yes. The second night was Joshua Kane. Yes. And the third night was Luther. Right. And so now he basically gets a month reprieve. Yes. Which I hope, fingers crossed, means that we're going to get more of his supporting cast. Because the stuff of Liza has been good. I will actually say, like this whole subplot about him finally realizing, oh shit, my sister may become a werewolf too. Right. And then we still have not gotten the fallout of her realizing that he's the werewolf. No. She's been unconscious this whole time since For then. two issues. Two, two whole issues. issues. She has been unconscious. Which, I will admit, is a 70s damsel in distress trope. I would I would like to see more of Liza. Yeah, honestly. yeah. I would like to see more of Liza's reaction to all this. Now that she realizes, oh, my brother's a werewolf. Maybe she realizes, oh, maybe I'm going to become a werewolf. Right. And maybe they can look for the Darkhold together. And maybe they can employ the help of their friend who's an investigative journalist. Oh, what's his name? Buck motherfucking Cohen. Amen. Let's bring back the real star of this. Well, let's just bring back the supporting cast, because obviously this book is strongest when you're relying on that supporting cast. Yeah. Like, the real drama of this issue comes from the peril to Liza. The, yeah, the... like these other characters... Again, as I said, I didn't bother learning their names because they didn't matter. When I was writing the summary, I had to go back and through the comic to realize what Desmond's... Right. The only reason I realized what Luther Kane's name was is because of the Mr. Right. Yeah, no, it's... It, the sooner we can get away from Jack off on his own and back to Jack dealing with his curse surrounded by people who care about him the more interesting the book will be. Yes. Because visually, it's there. Like, Plug is doing A-plus work on the visual. The problem is, he needs a story that we can care about. Yeah. Like, the visuals are good. And honestly, we've said this before, Werewolf by Night has the best supporting cast of any of the books we've talked about so far. Yes. I think eventually Dracula will give it a run for its money. But right now, you are correct. Like... The most relatable supporting cast, and the ones I keep on thinking to myself, hey, what's going on with these guys, is Werewolf by Night. Yeah, yeah. But we don't get nearly enough with them. We we keep on getting thrown back into this villain of the month, almost literally, no, literally, villain of the month narrative. Like, mm-hmm. you easily could have milked three issues out of the Mad Monk. 
Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. He could have become a recurring villain. Like yeah. body body hopping from person to person. Even just like three nights of him chasing the mad monk with Liza captive through the country the California countryside would have been better than the Kane brothers. It would have at least further developed uh Jack's relationship to the Darkhold. Exactly. Um but I suppose again that we want we want more from this issue kind of points out how strong it is. Yeah. Yeah. How 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 well these characters have been developed. I mean, we, you talk about Dracula, we have to remember the main character of Dracula is Dracula. Right. Right. Frank, Rachel, Quincy, they are the supporting characters. So, they're okay. <laughs> I mean, is it possible? Listen here. Is it possible we like Jack Russell? and his supporting cast so much because it's closest to the traditional Marvel um, main character and supporting cast relationship we're so used to with things like Spider-Man. I think that's fair. I think it's a fine line between, say, something like The Incredible Hulk and Werewolf by Night. Yeah. Whereas, I think with Tomb of Dracula, the the main character and supporting cast are adversarial. Right. Even more so than, say, like, J. Jonah Jameson and Spider-Man are adversarial. Yeah, no, I think there's something to that. I, I think what what I was suggesting was that as Dracula goes on, we're going to get a few more characters that fill out that supporting cast in a way that makes it interesting. Um, but then there are going to be issues where it's primarily just Dracula, and, and especially once he gets into interacting with the Marvel Universe. Like, you're right. It, it's it's an adversarial protagonist who is a villain, and and that's a, that's a much different story structure than something like werewolf by night yeah where again these are good people that just have a lot of bad shit happening yeah but i think when we start waxing philosophical about jack russell is when we've exhausted (laughs) i think so so i think that does it for another episode of tomb of ideas trey why don't you tell the nice folks what we're going to be covering next time absolutely uh we've got uh four issues coming up fear number 14 Marvel Spotlight number 10, Tomb of Dracula number 9, and Werewolf by Night number 6. Wow, so we're going to be talking about Man-Thing, Ghost Rider, Dracula, and the Werewolf all in one episode. Yeah, no, that's a a pretty broad range of horror creatures there, I think. Actually, I think it's a first for us. Might be. Those those are like our, those are our main guys right there. Right, all you gotta do is throw in Morbius and we're complete, basically. Exactly. Um, so uh, before we wrap things up um, we want to thank everyone for listening Um, please uh, let us hear from you we want to hear what you think if you have feedback on episodes if you have been reading along with us and you have thoughts on comics um, please let us know what you think we'll be happy to uh, to read it on the air if it's something that that, uh, is particularly interesting right you can reach us on twitter at tomb of ideas literally at tomb of ideas or by email is tombofideas at gmail.com. And, of course, we are a proud member of the Cinepunks podcast. That's right. And uh, in addition to that, as you, uh, if you haven't already, please do subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or the podcasting uh, catcher of your choice. Um, please do rate and review us. That helps with the algorithms. The more people who rate and review, the more people see that we exist, and the more people end up hearing us. So we do appreciate it. Exactly. I'm not sure how the algorithm works. It involves numbers, right? Right. And we, we're humanities teachers, so we don't do numbers. Yeah. I, I've had students say, Hickson, can you help me with this math and work? And like, ha, 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 ha. There's a reason I teach history, kids. <laughs> I get stressed out enough. Do- I have a program that does that for me. Nice. Uh, in any case, I think that wraps it up for this episode of Tuma, Tomb of Ideas. Uh, thank you for listening, and we will uh, be back. What? Unless you want to hear two teachers bitch about grades. Right. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that's a totally different podcast right there. I feel like that is a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that, that has to be a podcast. Probably. Probably like, so. teacher therapy session. <laughs> Anyway, as Trey was about to say before I got him off track, we'll see you next time. Bye. You have been listening to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. 
Until next time, Tubers. Excelsior! <laughs>